we're continuing our series on finding hope in every season. And I've been using it subversively, not so subversively, to talk about um, our discipleship framework um, that's really becoming integrated into everything that we do strategically and just as a culture in our church. It always has been, but we're formalising it. And you'll see it on the posters and the website and things like that. Uh, it's that it's that circle of seasons that we're going through. But we're talking into it through the lens of hopelessness and the pandemic of hopelessness that uh, our culture is experiencing. So each week I've been selecting uh, one of the roots of that hopelessness uh, because so many of us struggle there, but also just to talk into what is effective discipleship. And there's nothing inside hopelessness quite like a lack of purpose. A lack of purpose. And this... this um, choice-filled culture that we now live in has presents so many options for so many people, all of which seem sort of level. Uh, the choice anxiety means we don't know what's worthy to choose anymore. But finding purpose in Christ comes essentially through this thing that Jesus called followership or following. He defined those who would, who would go from merely being his fans, if I could put, use our modern language, to being his followers, from fans to followers. And those who called to follow him normally were already fans. You know what a fan is. We turn up at the Suncorp Stadium and we want to watch our team. We've got the jersey on, the whole thing, but we're not on the field. He calls us to get on the field at some point. You've seen, you've watched, you've enjoyed the game from a distance, but now it's time to decide are we in or out, are we a follower or are we not? And the purpose of God lived out in our life, the clarity and the value and the passion of that comes from directly a choice to follow, the hard choice sometimes. Once it's made, it seems a little easier, but it's, it can be difficult. And Jesus was very binary about this in the sense of black, white, dark, whatever, it, it's, it, you're in or you're out. Let's have a look at some of his, some of his language in this. Matthew 4, uh, 18 to 22, as he was walking along beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew, who were... Uh, parenthetically, who were fans at that stage. They'd been following Jesus around for at least a few months. They'd seen the miracles. Uh, they'd gone down to visit John the Baptist, thought that guy's a bit of a loose wheel, not interested in being one of his guys. Uh, Jesus looks a bit more like it. He doesn't do the grasshoppers and honey thing. So let's just lean that way. So they've been, you know, I'm giving you the, the Haggerty version here, but um, they're interested. They're fans, admirers. As they were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to, be, to fish for people. At once, I've looked at the Greek of that, that word that we have as at once. Very deep, it actually means at once. Uh, at once, immediately, now, no hesitation, drop everything, uh, turn the Bundy clock off, we're out of here, tools down. They left their nets and followed him. Would have been quite a scene. I imagine the family would have gone, what about the fish? <laughs> Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother, John. They were in a boat with their father, Zebedee. Uh, they, were, they were known as the sons of thunder. So, so Zebedee either had a, some sort of a problem or he was just a cranky man. I'm not sure what, what he was. But, um, but these guys were all amped up, James and John, and they were always navigating through whatever means, often their mother, to do a bit of a side deal to get higher in the, in, the, in the kingdom. You know, they had all sorts of stuff going on. They weren't qualified by their humility. Let me put it that way. And Jesus said, hey, how about you? So Jesus called them and immediately they left their boat and their father. 
love that bit. And followed him. Don't worry about the fish. It's dad we've got to worry about. All right. And we go on. Matthew 9, 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. So he's, he's pulling it in. Anyone here reeling in the money right now? You're in a golden season. Life's worked out. You finally found your sweet spot in your career. You're rocking it in. And you're a fan of Jesus. Got that side pocketed away. And Jesus fronts you at your workplace, books of time, turns up in your office. Time to follow. How about it? Matthew got up and followed him. So like all of us and unlike all of us, because obviously it was a different setting, first century Palestine, but like us, they had families, responsibilities. They had to pull in enough money to get some food. They had all this stuff. They had ambitions, probably just as we do. What on earth would possess these people to down their nets or their tax collecting booth or whatever it would be and literally, like, literally follow this guy? What would possess them? They were already believers in that sense. Why would they then pay such a magnificent price to go and follow? Well, for Jesus, obviously, that was what discipleship was and remains. So we've got to grapple with what does that look like for us now? We might not be collecting tax. We're certainly paying a bunch of it out, no doubt. Uh, what do we do with that? What does it look like for you to follow Christ now? One of these tax collectors gave away half his income and gave four times back to those he'd ripped off over the years. Would have been a long list. You think, what was there to gain? Now, was it forgiveness? No, they already, they already had that. Just like we do. Was it comfort? Were they saying, this is going to be a deal, this is a gravy train? No, they knew to follow this rabbi with dust all the way up to his kneecaps. They were going to be following him literally into the wilderness, no cover, nothing, sleeping out in the, in the world, no permanency, no guarantees of anything. Maybe it was ambition and maybe there was a bit of that about, I don't really know, James and John, they, they had a bit of a mixed motives at best, those characters, but they came good in the end. But they were going to discover, each one of them, that there was nothing in this for them. And yet, without hesitation, they gave everything up and followed Something in them was activated. Something, some fire took hold and it wasn't going to go out until it consumed them. And this is normal discipleship. This is what it means to be a Christian, guys. We've, we've set the bar so low because that's what we can get away with to have people still turn up on a Sunday. I can say that as a pastor because I know, I know what goes on. Now we're talking discipleship. But it's not all heavy and hard. It's, 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 it's an offer for life. For them, it was purpose, a reason to... I'm not just sucking oxygen and going through years. We're, we're, they knew they were going to die one day, the long or short average age expectancy was 35, so not that long for them. So they may as well live it flat out for something that really mattered. And so they were all in. I don't know what it was in their mind. Perhaps it was this idea of kingdom that was so enamouring to them back then. We've lost a little bit of that now. It's all about... Church becomes the expression. But let's get back to kingdom. They're, they're saying, this, this is God calling me now. This is kingdom. This is something that matters. It always has and it always will be. I can be part of this flat out, full on flame burning. So it superseded their career, their comfort, their finances. And it, apparently it superseded family. I'm not sure how that worked out, to be honest. The Bible doesn't really go there. 
But that, that, that purpose burnt so they had clarity and sacrifice and dedication and it vitalised them and they were never hopeless again. They had purpose. They were followers. But not everyone took up the offer, you know, even in the face of Jesus himself, just as we, we make the same offer. Some people uh, prioritise other things over that and they waver with the offer of follow me. And we've got to ask the question of ourselves. So in Matthew 10, 38, Jesus had to say, whoever doesn't take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. That was such a, I could never preach that. You know, that was a tough word. <laughs> Give it all up or don't bother coming at all. Mark 10, 21, Jesus looked at him, talking here about the rich young ruler. This guy's come full of sincerity. He's wealthy. He's done, in the world's eyes, he's done all that, that life requires to be the right person. And he's come to Jesus what do I have to do for eternal life? And Jesus says, all that stuff, it's holding you back. Jesus didn't need his money. He needed to cut the ties of that for his own sake. One thing you lack, go and sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. Matthew 10, 8, 19, another guy. Now, if I was building a church these days and I didn't have this squared away, and I've got to admit, this happened to me a couple of times, especially when we were starting up. The influencer comes. In church speak, we call them the person of peace, the person who can influence, the person who if they come, in comes the money, in comes the influence, in comes all the connections. If this guy comes to church, we've got it made. We're going to go forward now. That guy comes. I had a few people do that to us when we started. I'm not sure whether I've ever told the story publicly, but a couple of people said, here, you're starting a church, Pat, that's great. Here are my, here's the list of my doctrines that I, that I would need to know that you're on side with. Didn't disagree with any of them. I just said, this isn't the church for you. Because we don't do church based on what you think we have to adhere to. Because the minute you, I do something or say something you disagree with, you're out. Gives you permission to leave. We're building something deeper than that. We're trying to build relationship here. Full of imperfect people with our theology sometimes, not all the same. Broad range of theology here. We're not going to argue too much about things that aren't primary, but we'll go to war if someone tries to hurt someone else. It's about people. So that guy comes to Jesus and he did the same thing. The teacher of the law came and said to him, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, first, let me go and bury my father. Jesus, it sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Honestly, who's it going to hurt? Jesus knew more than we do. We do. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. See, he didn't, he didn't repeat it. He didn't try and convince people. He didn't give them the, the apologetic around that. I mean, he didn't do what I do and repeat the same thing week after week, you know, giving opportunity after opportunity. He just said it and then he just kept walking. If you want in, then get in because we're going. The kingdom is on fire. It's advancing forcefully and people of force take hold of it. Get on. There was no offer of fair conditions. There was no 38-hour week. There was nothing but an assumption that you would be so privileged to be a part of something that's going to matter forever with your life. So if we just put up the next slide there, we, we place this, this moment, if you like, and we make them these moments all the time, but there's a, there's a moment if you've been following us through the last few weeks where we've talked about the green zone there and the blue zone. And this, is, this cycle of seasons 
um, is a normal process of spiritual growth and formation, discipleship. And we grow through this, often through this sequence, and then we build layer upon layer upon layer of growth as we cycle through seasons of life and we grow more faith, more fruitfulness, and so on. And so we're coming to this following the green zone there, which is a, a wilderness, a healthy wilderness experience where God forms our soul out of the abundance and the increased capacity and character that that forms in our life, we naturally address issues of stewardship of my life. What's my purpose? Who has God made me to be? What's my history that I can use for Him? And it becomes a season of navigating followership. What does it mean now for me to invest all that I am and all that I have for His purpose? What does that look like? And this is a promised land. This is where the faith and the freedom now that we live in has equipped us to live in our promised land, our calling, where the giants still want to crush us like grapes, but now we know how to have faith. Now we're free. Now we're equipped to go there. And so we ask these sorts of questions about followership. It's less formational and, and more missional, and it's a joy to serve. We don't, we don't look at it as sacrifice so much, but, but sometimes we, do, we can even do this phase because every phase of this journey is fertile ground for hopelessness if we try and do it in our own strength, in our own way. And so we can look at this idea of purpose and followership and go, yeah, I'm all in. And we do it in man's way, which means I do it in my strength. And it's like we've lost the lessons of the wilderness because the wilderness is meant to teach us how to do things in God's strength. The freedom I have is because of what He's done. The faith I have is in Him and I'm living from Him. And it's on that foundation that I follow. But if I try and do it just because it's the right thing to do, if I see the need in the world, which is never ending and without limit, if I see that need and I try to meet that in my own strength, I'm going to become exhausted, disillusioned. I'm going to become burnt out. I'm going to deconstruct my faith. I'm going to do all sorts of stuff because it's like I'm turning up, but where's God at? And we blow ourselves up out of compassion fatigue, doing God's will, man's way. So it's very important that these seasons work together and one season will always lead inevitably to the next if we do it well. So what does followership look like? in 2023. And so I'm not even talking 2020 now because life has changed so much. So let's give current data on what's going on because we need to understand this context because we've got to make decisions of followership in this and the world hasn't been here before. There's a few factors that govern the context that we find ourselves in that, that impinge or make an influence on how we answer this. First one is that families now are under considerable pressure that doesn't look like it's going away, at least in the next generation. Pressure for time, pressure for finance. And if, you're, if you've got a primary age kids or young kids or even teens, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. The pressures on your life are not what they were even when I had uh, kids that age. It's different now. Over 40 years since uh, I've been looking at house prices, the data would say now that costs of housing versus income has gone from two to three times your wage to now being seven to 12 times your wage, depending on the city that you live in. If you're in Sydney, it's 12 times the average income for the cost of a home. That makes a difference, hey, that, that makes it hard. Now what do we do? Now a single person income's probably, on most cases, not going to do it. For the fortunate ones, it will. But, but in the most case, that means that husband and wife not only want to, but must work. And yet, still raise families and all the pressure that comes from that. So that means that at least one, but possibly both in that family, before they get to work at 8.30 or 9 o'clock, has already done a full day's work, getting kids and home and, and all that stuff done. That's incredibly real. It's got to be factored into our life 
that there is more going on now because there's more that has to go on for us to survive financially. And then if we have extra time, uh, it's often filled up with the, the emerging dynamic of kids at sport and all the activities um, that are a normal part of life now. So if we're talking followership, these things need to be put on the altar to be considered. How, does that, how do we navigate that and still be good, faithful people with our families? Many people genuinely feel very limited in their capacity for even to conceptualise followership and what is God's stuff. How do I factor that into my life? So it has to compete with all of that. Or maybe not. The second one is that society, and one of these will flow from the next, society has reordered the hierarchy of priorities in our life of what comes first, second, third, and so on. And even though we've got limit, limitless, it seems, choice of, uh, of careers and the way we do our life, we're, we're incredibly free society. Um, we can choose the tech that we use, the, the brand of tech and what it does in our life, the sort of image that we want as a person, our career pathways, and it's created uh, choice anxiety now where people just don't know what to do because there's no clear-cut hierarchy of, of purpose out there. And interestingly, kingdom life, and this has taken possibly 100 years, but kingdom life now where we prioritise in our minds as, as a status thing or as a value thing in society has waned considerably from the time where of Spurgeon and all these guys who were the pinnacle of society and church leaders incredibly respected, incredibly qualified. Now, uh, church world hasn't for some time attracted the best and brightest. Uh, we don't, you know, sorry, you're left with me, you know, Spurgeon, I ain't. But um, it just, as a, as a whole movement globally, the church um, has struggled to create the vision and, the, and the, the environment where young leaders rise up and say, I want to be a part of that. We've lost Gen Y. To leadership in the church. We've lost them. Congregationally led churches uh, where there's power struggles, baby boomers who expect it to look just the way they want it to, uh, otherwise they're going to vote the guy out, all that sort of stuff. We have our way. I'm putting myself in the, well, I'm in one of them too. We've had our way, but you may notice who's left the building. That's on us. It presents a very different situation for us, which I'll dig, dig into in a moment. So kingdom life hasn't attracted them. So now it's Gen X and baby boomers, my sort of got gang, and, and now the leaders who will be leading now and will be in the future are now 25 to 30, maybe a few years either side. Gen Zers, they're our fertile ground to work with now, and these guys are different again. See, Gen Xs and baby boomers, our idol, if we, had a, if we had a fault, and this is very broad brush, is that we, our idol was work. Our, we put other things aside for our work, for our ambition, for our status and all the stuff that we earned, we've invested. And we don't try and escape this. Don't try and say, I did it for my family. No. We did it because that's our culture. That was our generation. It just, that was what we thought was the best and right thing to do. We invested all that extra time into all of that, and at the expense sometimes of family. Gen Z have inverted that, and we've skipped a generation now. Gen Z have inverted that. Now family potentially is the idol, but that, that family is under so much pressure now because husband and wife are both working, uh, kids are everything, and, all, and, and, and so now work has, work has to suffer because you can't have 
everything on the barbecue at once at full heat. You can't have sausages and steak burning at full heat. Something's got to turn down while the other turns up. Something's got to give. And so now the workplace has had to find a way to give. And if you're an employer, you'll understand this. Suddenly the phone can ring and a spouse can say, I need you home right now. And they're gone. You think, what? I could never do that. It's like, sort it out. Now it's not like that. And so now staff are missing sometimes for hours in a day. And you've got to go, do I sack them or do I thank them for being such a good spouse? Don't know, but this model is not working for us anymore. So what do I do? I'll find cheaper and other alternatives for getting this whole thing to work. And the church world has had to grapple with this too. It's, it's a complicated thing. How do we honour both sides? Who's right? Who's wrong? How do we make this thing work? Because Gen Z, they're not driven by ambition and work in the same way. They're driven by purpose. They're driven by values. They're driven by the things that matter. They want a, they want a job that matters. They want to get behind something that's worth it. A, that's a great attribute. It's fantastic. But how does, how does, that, how does that play out when, when it all collides? See, the third one I've got, which comes from this, is this whole idea of loyalty. Loyalty to organisations, including the church, has almost disappeared. See, in, in the workplace, you'll know we're, we're now in a gig economy, a gig economy. So uh, whereas when I started in my, in my work days, for example, many of the employees were there for 20, 30, 40 years and the one, they were loyal to their company and they got the golden handshake or the watch at the end, you know. No one's loyal anymore. That, you would hear that if you're a Gen Z or Gen Y and you go, loyalty to an organisation? Who would do that? Why should I care what happens to them? Most jobs don't last more than two years. It's a gig economy that's based on, I'm going from project to project. But what that's done is now leaked into spirituality. In the absence of a greater vision and a compelling purpose, we've overlaid that mindset into our church life and now we have gig spirituality. Fantastic. You know what that means? You know what that looks like? is that you can have your youth group over here, you can go to church once here a week and then you can go over here this week because I'm a kingdom-minded guy, you know, and it's not about just one church. And that's fine. That's great. That's great for the kingdom because we're all working together and doing this different stuff. But you try running an organisation viably in that scenario where people aren't committed to anything. They're turning up where and when it suits. How do you create sustainability like that? Therefore, the result... 70% of churches in Australia are in decline. Maybe they should be. Who knows? We need to get this thing right. But we're grappling with stuff. We don't know. No one's mapped this course before. This is all new, that we're finding a new way. So this whole idea of purpose and followership, it becomes a high stakes game. It actually always was, I guess. But now, now we're noticing it. What does it look like? What does it look like for you and me to be followers of Christ? because it's not all about the local church. This is our invention. We made this up. Jesus didn't necessarily say, I've come to save, you know, to build my Kenmore church. When he looked at the church, I'm sure he looked at it on a regional basis, the church, not what we call a church. That's a mind bend for guys like me. We've got we've to grab that value and also find a way to make that work. But I know 95, 98% of you won't have that on your mind about how we make a viable fellowship. It's for you, it's about what is, what's my purpose? Uh, how do I play this out in my life and so on? Okay, so let's drill down a little bit. What we're finding in, 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 the, in the normal person in the pews now is that people are, and rightly so, increasingly sceptical of investing time and money into uh, big cell church. You know, over promise, under deliver, 
big screens, smoke machines and skinny jeans. It's just, uh, they don't buy it now. All good if you can do it and have some substance, but don't just give me that because we're not cashing in. They're smart and they're sassy. They're just saying, well, I'm going to question you on this stuff. Rightly, rightly so. So we, we, but we still need to have a hopeful setting, but we want authenticity and substance and competence of the people doing that. What, but what that forces us to try and do more with less realistically. So it's, it becomes vitally important in your personal response to followership. Many people, just because of the circumstances of life that I've just described, plus you add a thing like COVID and everything else, we're lacking margin in our life for God and for church, let alone enthusiasm. So energy tends to dissipate. People don't buy in just because the pastor tells you to, you know. That just doesn't happen anymore. Um, and, and tolerance for questionable practices and behaviour is very, very low. Good. And yet... People are hungry for purpose. Gen Z especially, those who we need to be catering for, are hungry for purpose. They're looking for inspiring causes and vision that's real. And people will engage deeply with that. But interestingly, deeply, when I say that, Gen Z, if I can have a bit of a laugh, don't think there's any in the room, um, they tend to be a fast flame. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm all in, love that value, but then, but then that collides with inconvenience. It's like, yeah, no, I'm tapping out. There's not a lot of substance generally because they, have, they haven't had to go through what, what we went through in many, many ways. So it's just a different day. So into that context, Jesus still says of me and of you, follow, follow me. And when we say follow, we're talking about put me first. Where I'm going, I want you to be going. What I'm saying, I want you to be doing. Follow me. Whatever else you do and you build your life on, don't pretend that you can call yourself a follower and put Jesus second. It just doesn't fit. You won't know the life that comes with followership. You won't know the freedom. And God doesn't pay a price for that. That's our own price. So in the gospel, the followers obviously didn't hesitate. Uh, they had the same questions that we would normally have about, well, what do I do with my life and so on. But they, they got to the point where it's like, well, where else am I going to go? What else could I possibly do? Now that I've seen, I can't unsee. Now that I know, I can't unknow. Where else am I going to go? And so they were prepared to make an incredibly difficult position, uh, decision. Interestingly, and this is, a, this is very important for our context in our culture, they didn't simply follow their passions. And passion becomes a big deal now. Passion becomes, it's the word of the season. I'm following, I'm passionate about this. Fantastic, good for you. But what happens when passion goes? You know, passion, it's a good part of motivation. God's designed our ability to have passion. But passion is a great slave but a terrible master. It's a terrible master. Because I can have passion for just about anything. If I have a win in some area, I'm going to get motivated to have another go. Oh, suddenly I'm passionate. But it might be taking me down a completely wrong path. It's a terrible master. There's sports, I can be passionate about that. I've, I've heard half of us screaming at the Springboks on Facebook, you know. So we can be passionate about that. Nothing wrong with that, but are we that passionate about God? I can be passionate about fitness or hobbies, relationships, politics. We get passionate about all sorts of stuff. The best passion, though, is a passion that follows what I've determined to be true and valuable and right. So the passion is the wake of my life, not the rudder. Let me illustrate in a very, not carnal way, but fleshy way in that sense. 
Years ago, I, um, 15 years ago, I started a, uh, uh, a romance for 10 years with this thing called cycling. Any cyclists here? No one's brave. I don't know what I'm going to say next. Not many. No cyclists here. Oh, there's one. I see that finger from the wife. Nobody wants to own up in public. Those guys who wear lycra that are way too skinny, you know, and that I swear about. <laughs> I became one of those guys. Now, it lasted for 10 years. Uh, and why? why? Why would anyone in their, in their sound mind ever do that? Like, I didn't wake up one day and go, I'm feeling really passionate about sitting on something that feels like a broomstick. Suffering every day because you've just ridden two or three hours to exhaustion, so you spend the rest of your day completely exhausted and seeing stars, getting up at a ridiculous time of day, cycling in the cold, freezing cold. Sometimes there would be ice on your little computer there. In the rain, getting injured when you fall off, being hated by motorists, objectified by everyone as no longer being human. There's something about lycra. As soon as you put it on, you're no longer a functioning human being. You're no one's, you're no one's son, husband, brother. You don't matter. You're just an object that's getting in the way of a car. And while I'm doing all that, I'm spending a fortune on that privilege. It's stupid. It, like, why would anyone do that? You can't understand it until you get into it and it's like, you, it's amazing where, where, where you can find passion for something. So it didn't appeal to me either. I was sane before I started as well. But I knew I needed to get fit. I knew I needed to get healthy. And, and, and I knew I'd need some help. And so all the people I knew who were sort of healthy, they're all cyclists. And, and so I thought, oh, I have to give this thing a go. And I, I did my first bike ride. And it was a horrible experience. It was everything I feared. It was just, why would anyone do this? But I decided... Okay, the only way I can do this is if I give it three months and I'm not going to allow those thoughts to impinge on my decision. I'll give it three months and then I'll see. So I'll give it a go to, to bite if it's going to bite. After one month, I wasn't as sore. I could still walk again <laughs> through the day. That was a really good moment. I could, I, I, I could do a ride up a hill more than three metres high and not vomit. <laughs> I can't tell you how good that felt to be able to do that and not throw up on the side of the road. After two months, I could actually ride 30 or 40 kilometres and, and watch the numbers on my little computer start to climb as my speed increased. After three months, I'd found a way. I was, I was getting so enamoured with it. I was, I was losing a kilo a week and, and getting up towards the magical 30K an hour because you transcend mortality <laughs> when you can do above 30 kilometres an hour. But I knew it wouldn't last, so I reassessed at that point. thought, OK, I'm in, but I'm going to need more of a cause than this because... Being healthy is not going to keep me at this because it is a horrible experience in, in so many ways, you know. And uh, so we, we decided, let's do it as a fundraiser. Let's get everyone together and we'll do something incredibly silly like ride 800 kilometres and, we'll and we'll start a charity and raise money for that back before everybody was doing it. And so we did all that and it was great. And in the end, I, be, I finally became addicted because I was, I was more than 30 kilometres an hour and I was getting quick and it was good fun in the end. But it, it never stopped being threat of danger sickness, all that sort of stuff. It never got any cheaper either, asked my wife. But you see, the passion would never have led me into that. It came after. It was a, it was a wake. It, it, it was a, a terrible rudder. And this overflows into most areas of our life. We've got to decide, I'm not going to determine my decisions based on what I'm excited about necessarily, because that excitement will come and go. 
the best passion serves a cause rather than determine the cause. And um, if these disciples, when they considered this question, will I follow, if they didn't follow because they were excited for the cause. Um, they wanted to be where it was true. It was, this is God. This is valuable. And I think sometimes we're not so aware as we need to be of the, of the imminence of God in our, literally here. When Jesus is in front of you and you've just seen him catch a dose of fish, you realise God is here. And I don't know whether you know those moments where you've seen a miracle or you've, or you've heard God speak into a situation, you go, this was just so unmistakably God. And suddenly you're humbled and you, and you bow down and you go, all these things I'm worrying about, they don't matter at all. This God is real. He's powerful and he calls me to follow him with everything. So everything else must follow that rather than the other way around. They had plenty of good reasons not to follow all the reasons we've talked about. So they didn't join because they were excited. They didn't join because they felt like they had something to offer because they were like churchy people. These guys were useless for church world like, until Acts 2. They had, they had nothing to offer. They were a bit of the, it's like in the cringe club. It's like, don't let these guys near real human beings because they're going to destroy the, the image of the kingdom. You know, but They lacked the skills. They had no credibility. They had dodgy theology. They brought nothing to the table. But their commitment and their skills and their ability to change the world, which ultimately they did, came from their commitment. It wasn't the reason why they got the commitment. So what does a choice to follow mean for us? What does it mean for you now? I guess we've got to consistently look through the lens of what does it mean to have God first? What if he was first with my finance, with my time, with my, with my things I'm prepared to put energy into? What if he's first? Not just, guys, hear me as a person who grapples with the same stuff. Not pretending. Not trying to act like a Christian. What if he really grappled with this? Am I squared away that God's real? Am I, am I, do, is my faith in this? That's the green zone. Is my faith, am I convinced? Have I squared this away that it's Jesus is Lord? Has he given me freedom from needing all that other stuff? Because if I'm really free, you're free to give. I'm not talking about money now. If I'm truly free, I'm free to give because nothing's got a hold on me anymore and I'm free to follow. Could I pass the pub test on this? If Jesus sat beside me at a bar and asked me, will you follow? Is it a, is it a yes? What does that look like for you? It's a phase of maturity that's fueled by the freedom and faith out of that new capacity. Like the disciples, our answer needs to be, because there is no other right answer, it needs to be, I'm all in, I'm in. Next question is, what does that look like? So what do we need in the kingdom now? And maybe it helps, and, and you've got to understand, kingdom and following is not only about what happens here in, a, in the church. It's, you're in the marketplace out there. It matters as much, probably no more and no less, but it matters in your family it matters in your marketplace, your job. It matters in every interaction, everybody you lock eyes with in the supermarket. This stuff matters. What, is it, what does a follower of Christ do when he turns up or she turns up? But if we constrain it for a moment just to what do we need in the kingdom now here, what, what you know, because sometimes we feel like, well, my hands are tied in the marketplace. What about here? Well, I'll tell you, one of the best things and, and what I'm truly thankful for is the fact that you turn up. You turn up. We're, we're incredibly blessed here. With, um, we're we're a, a thriving, growing fellowship, just gone to two services and, and, they're, and they're slowly building up again. And, um, 
But, you, but I can't overstate the value of you turning up here regularly for you as a discipleship experience, but just as much for the person next to you because they need you. They need your passion. They need your conversation. They need the fact that you care enough to stop. Don't race out the door. You, you stop to say hi to one and, and ask them, how are you doing? What's your story? That, if you just did that, that's the kingdom's come. So please, 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 this is not an optional part of the week. It's like, how can the week work around my Sunday experience with God's people? I understand the complexity, but, but as a priority, it's very, very important. Uh, logistically, we, all, we constantly need, sometimes it's a great problem. People say, you haven't got enough going on. There's nothing for me to do. Well, there's always something to do. It's a matter of whether you like it or not. Um, but there's lots to do. We need plenty of kids' helpers. Obviously, the guys at the tech desk behind there, none of, they haven't complained yet. They've got too many people on the roster. None of them, interestingly, were qualified before they got on. They just turned up and said yes, and then, and then we give them the training and, and all that sort of stuff. So we, we give you all the equipping to get involved, but we need, we need people there. We need people on worship, most of whom didn't learn their instruments just because they like playing a bass. Or a, they, it's, no, there's a need. How can I, how can I be a part of that? It's service. Even greater than all of that for me is that the, that the missional job of inviting someone and sitting with them or coming into this place, finding someone you don't know, going and sitting with them, so valuable. First prize for me on a Sunday or a Monday when I'm reflecting is that someone has come to me and said, your church is just so, it's just so welcoming. They, they're, they're happy. They stopped. They, they, they made a place for me. They bought me a coffee. The kingdom come. Thank you, church, for being that church. It won't be everyone's experience here, but uh, we're, we're, we're on the way. Even better again would be to, to do things that are not programmed, that you're not waiting for one of us to come up with a program. Against such there is no law to be a, be a nice person. Invite people over to your house for dinner. We used to have, have to organise it here, tables of six, tables of eight. It was fantastic when we had it, but that person's moved on to a different city. But just take the initiative. I'm not going to say no. You know, invite people over to your house that you don't know. It's fantastic fun. And if you can't afford it, let me know. I will pay for it. Go to the sushi train and, and live it up and we'll pay for it. Connection above finance, you know. Let's get this thing going. It matters. And then feel free to tell me or not tell me, but you're doing that as service to God and service to people. On top of all that, there's got a, we've got a few things going on. Um, in, a, in a few weeks, you're going to start to see this place turned a bit upside down because we've just had a vision for some time now and we're finally getting some, some traction on it. We're going to repaint the foyer, the entryway for the kids with a, with a really beautiful mural that when the kids come in and we're going to redo the check-in area so it's much more kid-friendly, they're going to come in and go, I love being here! You know, there's balloons and lollies and paintings on the wall and the people are happy and we have floral shirts and all this stuff. We, we just, I want this to be the place where they want to be here way more than McDonald's, you know. And um, so we're going to fit out all the kids' rooms. It's looking like, uh, let me confirm that, but it's looking very much like it, we've got it across the line. But where we currently have our offices now, where we cram one of the groups, and that's going to be fully cleared out now and made available for kids and the, and the staff are going to work from the basement downstairs. They couldn't wait. They could not wait for the chance to do that. Not a problem. Any cost for the kids. Any cost. And so um, that's happening. So we're going to need people to help us paint and prep walls, pull TV downs, rewire stuff. That's all going to be happening. If you want to be part of that, who do we see? Um, Elise, 
um, or Sandy probably. I've just dobbed you in, mate, sorry. Um, and we'll book in some Saturdays to do that. We've, we've just taken on next year a great outreach and kids' experience called Day Camp, which is going to run uh, through the July holidays where kids come, drop it. We've um, Mogul Uniting, bless their souls, used to run that. And um, they run out of personnel. So we've taken that on as a church now. And we're going to invite churches everywhere to come and help. Um, and we're going to invite kids from all over the place to come to that. It's just going to be fantastic. You can be a part of that. Uh, I just don't think I've got the knees to be able to do that one, but um, it's just going to be fantastic. Uh, we need more experiences like that. For me, there's a big hole in the sense of my heart is longing because I've had such a good experience with my own daughter, I guess. I'm just longing for experiences for young women, young girls. Um, we've got gents camp for boys. We've got all the father and son stuff. Where's the stuff for the girls? You know, and I'd love to see a group of us come together who just say, this will be my mission I want to help create this pathway for young women to go from, say, nine years of age through to 16 where they need rites of passage done in a brand new way. They need to get prepped for school and for uni. They need to go through what's life going to look like. I've got to deal with, with iPhones and porn and drugs and, and all this sort of stuff and, and take them away for a week, you know what I mean, and give them the, just a life-changing experience. We need that for girls. We need that for boys. I don't have the ideas for that. I've been praying now for a few years that someone or some group amongst us, one of you guys at least has that idea. It's the right idea. Let us know. Pull together a team and we'll just, we'll just resource the heck out of it. We just long to see that happening. Next year, we've got more exciting opportunities that are going to need some help. I've got unfinished business for me personally and I literally do not know why, but um, women in leadership, and the sooner I can get my face being, not being the one talking about this, the better. But at the moment, I'm, gonna, I'm championing this um, at a state level for Churches of Christ. You may not realise this, but as a movement, we uh, started with um, an, a core foundation that everyone God has called to minister in the gifts that he's given us. The, the, um, the women in leadership issue wasn't an issue for Churches of Christ when they started. This, we're talking 1800s. Um, but it's one thing to have that theologically, and I, and I understand not everyone here will agree with that. But, but next year, what I want to do is take us on a journey, and we're going we're to talk through the theology of that. But theology is easy. It's culture that's the problem. It's all right for us to say we want women in leadership. We want to see these. Because at the moment, we know we need it because it's like we're slaying the dragon with one hand tied behind our back because we haven't found a way to release half of God's people into the calling that they have upon their life. And I know in this room right here, right now today, some of you women are world changers and you're just waiting for, I don't know, God knows what, but I'll, I'll do, we will break our back to break that ceiling for you. We can't take the steps, but we'll try our best. And, and next year we want to start that process off. We'll talk into the theology, but then we're having a conference in uh, the second quarter um, for women in leadership. And I've invited two, of, uh, it's taken me two years to find them. Two, of the, two, of the, two women I'm so proud of, so confident, just great women who've broken through, working family women uh, with, with their kids still happening, all that stuff, they've navigated all that and they're competent and they're clear and they're cutting edge with leadership, they understand, they're humble and I've invited them to come and speak into this church but as soon as I did that, the whole state said, can we be part of that as well? So I just want to fill this place for a whole weekend and just see what God will do and then follow on from that with whatever it takes, environment, groups, initiatives, I don't know. I'm looking for help, as you can tell. But uh, let's, let's slay that dragon and let you women loose.
in that sense. So there's all that coming up. There's Alpha. May well be a church plant coming up or maybe two next year. We'll just see how it's going. But as I said, there's much more to kingdom than, than what we're doing in church. And this is not a recruiting day. So we haven't given you a next steps form and we're not asking you for anything. I'm asking all of us to consider what does it really mean? Am I a follower or am I a fan? Because you've got to square this one away because you won't know Christian life until you're a follower.